Daniel is one of the books that, of, of two primary books that, that people really are uncomfortable with being in the Bible. They don't think that it's accurate or it's got to be written later or whatever. One of those is Genesis, because obviously science has taught us that the six-day creation couldn't have happened, which is always interesting because science will tell us just how certain they are things happened. And then later they say, oh, well, we found out something different, and now we're really certain that this happened. And then they find out some more. Well, no, well, that was wrong, but we're really certain that this was happening. So if you're kind of convinced that science knows what's going on, wait another day or two. The other book that has that kind of difficulty is this book that we're studying because of what we're going to talk about now and some other prophecies. Because these prophecies are so dead on. The critics say, there's no way that somebody could have seen this in the future, you know, the, in the past, to see it in the future. So that's why we're titled this, the message, similar to a movie title, Back to the Future. When Daniel was alive, that was our past. And so he is going to give some prophecies in this section that we're going to look at and later in his book that, quite frankly, People just argue there's just no way that a human can do that. And Daniel in his book is going to go, you're absolutely right. But there is a God in heaven. And my view is that if God could and did create the world and all that it contains, he knows what's going to happen in the future. It's not that hard for him. As a matter of fact, not only does he know what's going to happen in the future, he determines and is sovereign over the future. And so there are those who will say, okay, uh, this had to be written way later. And then in order to kind of justify, because there are some other passages in this that even for us is the future. But I'll say, so they have to interpret it certain ways and those who believe that Daniel got this revelation from God will interpret it a different way. So I'll give it real quick. There are several kingdoms that, that Daniel is going to discuss. And those who believe that it was written later, well, there's a portion that was still future to that later. And so they reinterpret it and says, well, instead of it being Babylon and Medo-Persia, it's Babylon, medo Persia, Greeks, and they go from there. Um, so that's all I'm going to say about that. I just flat think they're wrong. So I'm going to go from the belief and assumption that Daniel got this from God, that it was before it happened, and God knew it, and we're going to say why it is. Um, and quite frankly, if I did not believe this, I'd go sell insurance. I mean, there's a lot of people who read the Bible. Well, this couldn't possibly happen. Okay, wonderful. Find out a book that can and, and study that. But, it, but if this is just fiction, then it might be a nice read. But it's more than that. So we're going to take up Daniel chapter 2, starting with verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. So in case you weren't here uh, previously, 
Basically, the king wanted to know what his dream was, whether he had forgotten it or not, we can argue about. And he wanted the interpretation. The wise men kept saying, well, tell me what the dream is and we'll give you the interpretation. And the king goes, no, no, I want you to tell me what the dream is and then I'll believe your interpretation. And they stall for time. And the king says, that's it. Kill all the wise men. So they go off to kill Daniel. And Daniel goes, wait a minute, why, why are you in such a hurry? What, what's the deal? So then Daniel goes into the king and asks for time, which again I find interesting because he didn't give his own wise people time, but because God granted favor to Daniel, he allowed Daniel some time. Daniel then has a prayer meeting. God reveals the dream and the interpretation, and Daniel bursts out and prays. So that's where we are. So he goes to Arioch, who's given the, the mission of killing all the wise men. He says, stop. I'll be able to declare the interpretation to king. This is great. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. Notice, he takes credit. I found. It wasn't, while well, I was off killing people, whatever, Daniel said, give him some time, he could come up with it. And Daniel came to me and said, it would be, it would be more honest if he said, there's this guy who can do this. Here he is. But it's no, he's taking credit. And, and that's so humanly typical. We all want to take credit. I mean, pastors are, are well known for that. We, we, we'll, we'll talk about the spirit moving and whatever, and then we'll say, yeah, but I grew the church. And I made these buildings, and I did all this. And you didn't do whatever. So he wants to take credit, which I think is a little gutsy, because what if Daniel's wrong? I found this guy. Well, not only are the wise men going to die, I'm going to take your head off too because you, you brought me a charlatan. But he takes credit. I found this man from among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? So he asked, you know, he, makes a, he doesn't take Arioch's word for it. He asked Daniel, can you do this? But he doesn't call Daniel Daniel. He calls him by his name, the name that they have given Daniel, which means that, that Bill will protect him. Now notice Daniel's response. Not like Arioch. Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. True statement. But I find it interesting because, in essence, he's starting off his presentation by saying nobody can do this. So if the king doesn't have any presence, okay, you're dead too. He starts up, no person can do what you've asked. However, however, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. Notice Daniel doesn't take credit. As a matter of fact, 
Daniel doesn't even take credit for being, if you will, the guy who's able. He says, God reveals it to you. It's not that I'm wonderful. See how great I am. I've been able to interpret this for you because God deemed me the guy to do it, to present it to you. It's God reveals to you. I'm an inconsequential middle person. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while you were on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what will take place. So Daniel not only says, I know what the dream is, but I know what you were thinking before you even had the dream. Before you had the dream, you were wondering what's going to happen. You're this mighty king who has absolute rule. Your word stands. There is no legislature. There is nobody who makes laws. The king makes laws. The king breaks laws. It's the king's absolute power. And so he says, you are wondering about the future. And because you are wondering about the future, you had this dream and God revealed it to you. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Again, Daniel says, I'm not a brighter than anybody else. It is God who's revealed it, but he didn't reveal it to me to make me better. He revealed it to me so that I might tell you because God gave you this mystery. It's for your benefit. It's kind of like what we as believers are supposed to do. Be beneficial to others. And so he says, I'm just Alexa. Just telling you what you've asked. O king, you O king, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, was, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you and its appearance was awesome. So he's saying, first part of this thing, there's this great, tremendous statue. You were standing in front of it, and it was huge and awesome to behold. And the head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breasts and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you continued looking until a stone was cut without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So Daniel says, that's the dream. You're standing in front of a statue. It was awesome. It was large. And it was made of multiple different materials. Verse 36. This was the dream. Now we. Now he could be using the royal we. Or he could be saying, God and I are going to tell you what it means. So we'll tell you what the interpretation before the king. You, O king are the king of kings to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. 
And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Daniel says, in essence, looking from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, he had absolute power. And if you look as, as the materials of the statute change, the power of the leader begins to diminish. But he said, under the Babylonian system, the king's word was law. You didn't consult anybody. You didn't have to. You made the rules. Here's the bad news. After you, there will rise another kingdom inferior to you. Now, the Babylonian kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar started his reign in 605 B.C. He died somewhere either in 652 or 6, I'm, I'm sorry, 662 or 560 B.C. But the kingdom of Babylon fell in 539 B.C. So this new kingdom has now come. And that is what most interpreters consider to be the Medo-Persian kingdom. The inferior one made of silver. And it reigned from 539 B.C. And then Alexander the Great in 334 B.C. invaded their territory. And by 331 B.C. he had ultimately conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. So then this third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over you. So we had the Medo-Persian, and again there was this two groups who ruled. They had a king, but again he was more refined because he had to get additional authority by other rulers. And then you have the bronze, which is a stronger material. And if you've seen any of the 300 movies or whatever, you have noticed that they wore blessed plates and helmets of bronze. One of the reasons they were able to defeat the Persians was they had just tunics and, and wicker type of shields. So Alexander, with his tactics and God's preordained decision, ruled and conquered that area. However, it started to dissolve in 190 B.C., and by 31 B.C., it was totally vanquished. Verse 40. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. This is, as most interpreters understand, the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, if you will, is aptly described as iron because they destroyed anything in their way. They were cruel until they got what they wanted. If you don't, to just give you an example, think of their treatment of Jesus. 
Think of their treatment of the various ethnic cultures that they defeated. They made them slaves. They did what they could do because they imposed their will. But even in that, if you will, it was the Senate and Roman people. At times, the emperor would try to take over or whatever, but it started out being kind of like a republic. So again, the the absolute authority kept going down to the people. And the Roman Empire lasted until about 476 A.D. Now, if you read various scholarly material, they will not use B.C. and A.D. Because you're not supposed to use those things anymore. It's supposed to be B.C.E. and C.E. Before the Common Era and Common Era. I still use B.C. and A.D. because the defining issue of history of mankind is before Christ and after his death. And so I'll still use that as a dividing line. Now, in that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And you saw that the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. Now if you read various experts and whatever, they will say that this kingdom is the revived Roman Empire. They're much smarter than me. They may be right. I have a different take. Because you see, the revised Roman Empire hasn't happened yet. I don't see a bunch of gaps in the statue. So I'll tell you what I think. And what I think, and 250 might buy you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. I don't drink coffee, so I don't know what it costs. I think there was another kingdom that arose after the Roman Empire. And it expanded from the Middle East westward through northern Africa and even to Spain. And it has expanded eastward even to Southeast Asia and to places like Indonesia. It's made up of two primary religious sects, but there are a number of others. It's made up of two primary ethnic groups, although there are others. And I think that that kingdom is in existence, and it started about 600 A.D. That's what I think. Because as I see the various countries that are involved in that, you will see some countries who are ruled by monarchs, 
Some countries are ruled by oligarchs. Some people are ruled by a theocracy. Some people are ruled by a form of democracy. It's very, so that they're, and, but these two sects have difficulty really joining one another, although they have a common purpose. They just want it differently. So, in my view, you've got a statute that exists even to this day. All the wise people say it's revised Roman Empire. I know that there will become a day when I will know whether I'm right or wrong, whether I'm alive or not to see it. But my caution is don't believe what I say and don't believe what everybody else tells you. Research it for yourself to determine what does the Word of God say. Verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future so that the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. Daniel's, in essence, telling Nebuchadnezzar, you may have absolute power. And throughout the rest of the history of this world, there will be empires that will rise and fall and rise and fall, but there will become an empire that will crush and destroy all empires, even the previous ones, so much so that they are less than the dustpan of history. And this will be done by a rock, by a stone that is cut without human hands which means it will be done by God. And this kingdom will fill the whole earth. And this kingdom will be forever. And this kingdom will last where the others won't. Now, I want to give you a little remembrance of rocks and stones. Remember in Exodus, the people of God were wandering around and they were complaining that they didn't have any water. And so Moses went to God and said, the people are about to kill me because there's no water. And God tells Moses to do a really weird thing, to strike a stone, a rock. And Moses does, and water comes out and everybody drinks it. Days pass. People are complaining about the water again. Moses gets fed up, tells God, they're about to stone me, whatever. God says, speak to the rock, speak to the stone. Moses makes an error in judgment by not taking God's word seriously and strikes the rock. Water comes forth, which shows you that God is a very merciful God, because if God had been God, you could eat sand. 
But God's merciful. He gave the people water, but he opposed Moses because you didn't take my word seriously. You're not going to the promised land. You can see it from a distance. You're not going in. Paul tells us in Corinthians, that rock, that stone was Jesus. We're also told in Psalms, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Isaiah also says, Thus, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am lying in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed, and he who believes in it will not be disturbed or disappointed. The Old Testament is giving us clues to the mystery about this stone that is cut without hands. And I want you to see what Jesus said about a stone. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 18, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. If not, it'll be up on the screen. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter or little stone, or little rock. And upon this rock I build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not overpower it. Now there are two generally accepted interpretations of this passage. Our Catholic friends tend to think that Jesus is building his church on Peter. We as Baptists and Protestants disagree, and our interpretation the one that i've taught and usually follow is that jesus is saying on the statement that jesus is the christ is where he's going to build his church let me give you another possibility for consideration again i'm not saying this is the correct interpretation just want you to think about it what if jesus when he said you are little rock Upon, and then he points this rock. And he points to himself. Upon this rock, I will build my church. That Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the stone cut without hands. Jesus is the one that will start the kingdom by decimating all of human endeavors. Peter We'll follow this up when he will quote both the passages that I have read to you. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says this, And coming to him as to a living stone, 
which has been rejected by men, but is a choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in the Scriptures. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected. This became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. So when Daniel gives the interpretation of what this stone with, cut without hands comes and hits the feet, which means that's when it will take place. It won't take place during Nebuchadnezzar's time. It won't take place during the Medo-Persian Empire. It won't take place during the Greeks. It won't take place during the Romans. It'll take place during this last empire. But it will cause not only the eradication of that empire, but all other forms of human government. Even democracy. As it once was said, Democracy is the worst form of government except all those that have been tried beforehand. But there is one form of government that will be perfect. And that is when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords comes to establish His kingdom. And He has called you and me to be members of that kingdom. And not just members of that kingdom, but citizens. But not just citizens but to be sons and daughters of the Lord God Almighty, to be brothers and sisters of Jesus. So we are a part of a kingdom, as Peter will describe, of a royal priesthood, a royal group of people. That's who we are. And so whether you're, whatever you're, Republican, a Democrat, an Independent, a Communist, a Socialist, a Radical, an Anarchist, whatever it is. Whatever you hope to achieve will only be for a short period of time. Because His kingdom will last forever. And your kingdom will end up in dust. As I told you before, that excites me because my dream was to be president. As I explained to you, even if I was and even I had this perfect ability and, the, and everything was wonderful, some person would come and change it all. It's the history of the world. Most people don't even know who Nebuchadnezzar was. And none of us know how to spell his name. We're lucky that we know how to pronounce it because enough people have pronounced it. But God has included me to be a child of the King in a kingdom that will never change, in a kingdom that was ruled by a perfect God who is a lover of you and me. 
Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him an offering and fragrant incense. And the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Interesting. This king, who was told by God that he was in essence the gold part of the statue, that God had given him absolute rule, does homage not only to Daniel who is the vessel for the interpretation, but worships God and acknowledges that not only is God the God of gods, even the God of his fake gods, but he is the God of kings, that he is the king of kings, that he has power only because the king of kings allowed him to have power. And that he gives worship and praise to that king. And then being true to his word, verse 48, the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Which is, we're going to see later, doesn't make all the other wise guys happy. Because this foreigner is promoted to this high position. But again, notice Daniel has given praise to God. Doesn't take just for himself the promotion. And Daniel made a request of the king. And he appointed Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now I know your Bibles say the Babylonian names. But I want to repeat one more time the names given by them by their people who worship their God. So Daniel wanted not only him to be promoted, but he wanted Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to receive the benefit. So he made, appointed them over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Living in a foreign land presents us with all sorts of difficulties and obstacles. But we need to use the wisdom of Daniel to understand that we give glory to God. That whatever ability or talent that you have been given, you have been given it because God has given it to you. You may have a voice that rivals the angels. It's not your voice. God gave it to you. You might have the ability to turn one dollar into billions. It's not your talent. God gave it to you. You might be able to rule vast empires as Nebuchadnezzar saw. It was because God gave it to him. And even though initially, like most of us humans, we let it go to our head, 
our golden head, he comes to realize that our God is the God of gods, Lord of lords, King of kings. And we should always understand that and understand that when we come to a situation where somebody needs our help, it's not that I have this so that I can help you, but that God gave this to me so that I might help you. I didn't receive the interpretation so that I might be wonderful and then give it to you. I received it for your benefit. And that's how we should approach all of our ministry. I received it for your benefit, not my glory, but for his. And all God's people said,